This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. All right, guys, well, welcome back to week four of our oncology month. Today, I think you guys know what the topic is, but it's going to be our rapid-fire review of our three oncology cases. So first things first, we need to know the basics of ALL, because after all, it is the most common pediatric malignancy, and fortunately, one of the highest cure rates. Presentation of this disease typically includes any or all of the following features. Fevers, bone pain, limp or refusal to walk, hepatosplenomegaly, lymphadenopathy, bruising and or petechiae. Poor prognostic factors include age at diagnosis, which is less than one year old or greater than 10 years old, white blood cell count, which is greater than 50,000 at diagnosis, mature B-cell leukemia subtype, CNS and testicular disease involvement, euploidy or hypoploidy. Remember, hyperdiploidy has a better outcome, especially with chromosomes 4, 10, or 17. Finally, translocations 922 or 411 have the least favorable prognosis. Translocation 1221 has a favorable prognosis. The ETV6 RUN-X1 rearrangement, also known as translocation 1221 P13 Q22, is the most common recurrent genetic abnormality and has a very favorable prognosis. The last prognostic factor is minimal residual disease, or MRD. If cancer goes into remission within the first one to two weeks with a less than 0.01% MRD on day 29, this is a very favorable outcome. Now, thanks, Liz, for talking leukemia, but let's shift gears and talk about abdominal tumors. So to review a couple of the big heavy hitters for abdominal tumors, let's start with Wilms tumor. So Wilms tumor will be unilateral or bilateral, but it does not cross the midline. Typically, this will present with a well-appearing asymptomatic child who's just incidentally found to have an abdominal mass. If symptoms are present, they tend to be urinary symptoms, such as hematuria, frequency, or incontinence. Wilms tumors have a slight predilection for females over males, African-American patients over other races, and also has the highest rates of association with other congenital malformation syndromes at about 10% of all Wilms tumors. The most common syndromic associations are Beckwith-Weedman, isolated hemihypertrophy, Wagger syndrome, which is W-A-G-R, that stands for Wilms tumor, aniridia in the eyes, and GU abnormalities. And the final one is Dennis-Drash syndrome, which is comprised of nephropathy, Wilms tumor, and gonadal dysgenesis. Next, we're going to talk about neuroblastoma, which was the case that we had. So neuroblastoma typically will present with a fixed, immobile abdominal mass that can cross the midline, along with constitutional symptoms such as fever, fatigue, and weight loss. Neuroblastoma has two perineoplastic syndromes that are associated with it, which are opsoclonus myoclonus and VIP syndrome. Opsoclonus myoclonus is described as including myoclonus, ataxia, and opsoclonus, which are rapid, chaotic eye movements. This is more common in low-stage or low-risk neuroblastoma, but about 80% of these patients will also have long-term cognitive and motor delays, language deficits, and behavioral problems. 
VIP, or vasoactive intestinal peptide syndrome, stems from the neuroblastoma tumor secreting VIP. This will often present with watery diarrhea, a distended abdomen, and dehydration, and it's typically resolved when the tumor is resected. And finally, hepatoblastoma, which is the most common malignant liver tumor in children. The mean age of diagnosis is 19 months old, with a slight predilection for males over females and Caucasians over other races. Typically, these patients are asymptomatic at presentation, and they're also found to have an abdominal mass. But they can present with severe abdominal pain and anemia from tumor rupture and hemorrhage. Most cases are sporadic, but they can be associated with other syndromes such as Beckwith-Wiedemann, familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP, and trisomy 18. Well, that's going to be it for the review on abdominal tumors, but let's shift gears and talk about bony tumors to finish our discussion and review on Onc. Sammy? Absolutely. So let's start talking about bone tumors and its lookalikes. So most bone tumors will present with localized bone pain. The most common sites for bone tumors are the femur, humerus, and tibia. So let's start by talking about osteosarcoma, which is the most common malignant bone tumor in children and adolescents. Typical age of diagnosis is between 14 and 19 years old and slightly more common in boys and African-American patients. Most cases do occur sporadically, but there are some known associations with Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, hereditary retinoblastoma, and Rothman-Thompson syndrome. And it's also common in children who are previously irradiated. It's most likely to occur in the metaphysis of long bones, with distal tumors having a more favorable prognosis than proximal. Radiographs will show that classic sunburst pattern, and systemic symptoms are actually not usually present on diagnosis. This is in contrast to Ewing sarcoma, which is the second most common malignant tumor in kids and adolescents, and it has a median age of diagnosis around 15 years. The most common locations of this tumor are the pelvis, axial skeleton, and the femur, but it can occur in the tibia and humerus as well. Interestingly enough, there are actually no cancer predisposition syndromes associated with it. These are typically found in the diaphysis of long bones, and x-rays will show those destructive, confluent, moth-eaten lesions, as well as Codman's triangle, which is that elevated periosteum, and onion skinning, which is another periosteal reaction. Around 20% of patients present with metastatic disease on diagnosis and will have those systemic symptoms, and one-fifth of those patients will actually have lung involvement. Somewhat related is rhabdomyosarcoma, so it's actually a soft tissue sarcoma that sneaks its way into our discussion because a minority of cases can present in the extremities. These can present as an enlarging mass with compression effect on surrounding structures and localized swelling with or without overlying erythema of the skin. These are much more common in younger children, with the majority of cases actually being diagnosed below six years old. And then one benign little guy who finds its way into here as well um, It is an osteochondroma we talked about. So that is composed of cartilage and bone. It's in similar location to osteosarcomas, but are actually much smaller, usually less than 1.5 centimeters in size, and will not have those systemic symptoms associated with it either. The most common locations of these tumors are still in the humerus, femur, and tibia, and you can actually even see these in the radius and ulna as well. But just to note, these are, of course, benign. So that's actually going to close out our month on oncology. If you like this podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. And next month, we'll have all the stats facts that you could want to know just in time for a rapid review before boards. Thanks for listening, guys. Stats facts. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Have a great time. Bye.